1: In Northampton, where, long after his time, Daughter Mary would worship on a chair outside the sanctuary so she wouldn't have to join the congregation. She took a boat across the river to Hadley for communion. They say that the Reverend Mr. Jonathan Edwards wrote his sermons in a tree. He would climb the big elm in front of his house by boards nailed to the trunk and dangle his long skinny legs off a limb. People peered up at him through leaves that sifted light, which he had taught them was akin to sifting God. Even in the tree, he was aloof and somber, but passers-by craned their necks to enjoy the spectacle of him in his Geneva collar and second-best wig, riding furiously against a smooth place worn clean of bark. His inkpot was wedged in a knot, and when his elbow jostled branches, great arches of leaves shook.
0: Susan Stinson is the author of four novels, including Venus of Chalk, Martha Moody, and Fat Girl Dances with Rocks, as well as a collection of poetry and lyric essays. She has received the Outstanding Mid-Career Novelist Prize from the Lambda Literary Foundation, She lives across the street from the cemetery where many of the people who appear as fictional characters in her new novel, Spider in a Tree, are buried. Thank you for joining me, Susan. Happy to be here. Susan, this is a novel about, at its core, a man who might be considered patient zero for the current strain of religious fundamentalism that has captured uh, the Christian right.
1: Some people think of him that way. He's a lot of other things to me.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about uh, encountering this man and as a, first as a historical figure and then deciding to turn him into a character in a novel, which seems to be thats a big leap.
1: It is. Well, you know, unlike a lot of people where I live in New England, I I didn't read his most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, in high school. So I knew really nothing about him um, when I first got interested in him. But I live in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he preached for 23 years. And as you mentioned, I live across from the cemetery. I was riding there and walking there all the time. And started reading the gravestones and getting interested in the people and the story. So it was literally the landscape that, that led me to Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things that really struck me when I first started to learn about his, who he was is that nobody referred to, he, there was this story about him and his, his wife and his large family, but no one ever talked about the fact that there were slaves in the family. And that The people were enslaved in their household, like that tension between someone who held himself and all the people around him to such incredibly strict, high moral standards and had a practice of testing himself at every moment to try to make sure that he was, he was meeting those standards and to to have an intimate lifelong relationship with slavery at the same time seemed to me a, a very compelling thing. Plus, when I started reading him, he's an amazing lyrical writer.
0: That's one of the things that struck me in this book. I loved reading the the portions, and I'm guessing they must be real, from his sermons. Talk about uh, just going through those sermons, because they read in some ways like excerpts from some wild fantasy novel.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I think that that's a valid interpretation. You know, I mean, he... he His, you can't engage with Jonathan Edwards' work, I think, without engaging with his Calvinism, because it was so central to who he was in his religion. So it creates a barrier for some contemporary. Readers, even if just by reputation, you know, and he deserves his fire and brimstone reputation. I mean, that's a real element in his work, but he's also enormously committed to beauty and he evokes experiences of beauty. That was one of the pathways or or to the sacred for him in ways that just make the top of your head explode i mean at least mine i mean he i i had no idea that i was going to be so caught and dissolved and put back together again by his writing and he he addresses he goes right at the most urgent moral concerns with everything he has and you know that's pretty interesting too what struck me
0: was that as a writer you had to Found yourself with a task of building a world out of words and to use the to appropriate where you could the language of the time to make it accessible to our time, but also to create a vision of the world that's very different. Because when we look around the world, we see atoms, we see molecules, we see walls, buildings, machines. They saw a world that was held together only by some supernatural agency that had a deep and very troubling emotional relationship with them.
1: Yeah, right. Oh, you got that. That's right. I mean, that was one of the central challenges of the book was how could I enter into, you know, an 18th century New England mind. And one of the things that's fascinating about Jonathan Edwards, to me, I mean, you know, they didn't have the idea of infections. It was humors, you know, and he, he was very committed to scripture and the word, but he also Read the landscape, and he was unusual in his time for he has these an, a notebook that wasn 't published called Images of divine things where he 's you know he 's taking notes on what it means that a snake swallows a, a a squirrel and what what that what he, he called them types, what that communicates, what the parallels are in the scripture and what it means about god 's intentions. He looks at rivers that way, he looked at the landscape that way, and he looked at science that way, some scholars think that he was a very early reader of Newton's optics. He didn't have this division that we often see now between religious life and and science as it was understood at the time. He thought it was all um, communication from God, and so you would want to read it as as carefully as you could.
0: That's one of the things that I really love, is this notion of looking at the world around you and not seeing what's there. But seeing it as a signpost or an omen for something that isn't there, and that is makes for a really fascinating character.
1: Yeah, well, and and part of the one of the things I love about this set of beliefs is that, and you can never be sure if you're right. You can understand everything with your rational mind. You can have analyzed it and have, think you're on solid ground, but God might intend something else. You can always be surprised. And in fact, it's a major sin to be sure even though he seems very sure.
0: I really love the way you've crafted these characters. Uh, We have Jonathan Edwards, but not just him. We also have his wife and the slave Leah, who are kind of the primary players in this book. And I'd like you to talk about, um, as a writer, when you took up this project, whose mind were you in first? Whose mind were you in most? And whose mind did you like being in the most?
1: Oh, wow. These are such great questions. I think I started with Jonathan Edwards. I started with Jonathan Edwards, and that, of course, was very difficult because he has such a strong voice of his own. It's very presumptuous of me to be entering his mind, Um, and there was special barriers around that because I'm a lesbian, you know, and so I felt some tension about entering the mind of someone who's not only a brilliant writer, a brilliant theologian, but an icon for many who... Who who have trouble with the fact that th- and people who are LGBT exist, right? So so that was a moment of tension. But I and and he ha- how to how to how to be with Jonathan Edwards in a way that was true to who he was and true to how he used language as the as best as I could understand it. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand it, and also. Not let him be the only voice in the book. Not just so, okay, this is the story as he understood it and that's the story I'm going to tell because that's, I couldn't tell that story. I also, early on, I I was trying to do his grandmother who's really a wild character, but as, it was a different century. So I decided I had to let her go.
0: Oh, that's too bad. I, we'll go back and get and I, her. May, <laughs> I may,
1: I may, because she's kind of fantastic. So Aunt Leah was you know there's also i'm i'm a white woman and 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 entering the mind of of an african american slave was also something that i had i felt like i had to think very carefully about who I am, what my historical relationship is to that character and what her reality would be. And I didn't know that Jonathan Edwards, that there were slaves in the household when I started, but once I knew that it was like, oh, my responsibility is to understand those people as peoples as well as I can and, and to, to be, make sure that those characters have an inner life that is human and compelling. And of course, I loved writing Leah.
0: You know, one of the things that struck me when you talk about Jonathan Edwards was you mentioned that his stuff was kind of hard to understand it. And to a certain degree, it seems like that was deliberate. But he also, he just, he was a man who would use just what are today would be cutting-edge argument and logic and dialectic and reason to just really twist people's minds. And I think... And as a means of controlling his congregation to with logic and to address these spiritual matters. And he put something, there's one portion of the book, it's in, I think towards the end, where he's like doing a, a sermon where everything's negative, where it's a double negative all the way through. And it's like you're going, wow, that's. <laughs>
1: oh, oh, the, the rhetorical moves are unbelievable. And the, he, it's just this combination of like, intellectual rigor you know i mean rigor because they're tight arguments and but one of the 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 things that he advocated for in his theology was he was a a proponent of the great awakening this, this big revival and so he was arguing for religious affections he called it strong emotion in religion because there were some people who um who said you know god gives us gave us our intellect and that's the way we're supposed to experience religion but jonathan edwards for all the strength of his mind and his arguments you know the way he used yeah logic and to 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 move towards this basically Totally irrational thing. I mean, it's not about logic, you know. It's about it, and and people, you know, in the grips of the revival, they would. Uh, Sarah had moments when she was compelled to rise from her chair and dance. People would faint. People would groan. People would scream. It was like this this very um, expressive possibility in a society where otherwise that would be very frowned upon. And he used everything he could to help make experience of of grace available to people. He, of course, would not think of it as manipulation. It was like almost anything is justified if you can sanctify that moment, if you can bring people closer to God.
0: Well, one of the things, too, that's interesting in, in this book is we see him not just as a preacher and not just arguing and not just through God. He also he had to live in this community where he wasn't always necessarily well liked, where he had competition. This is a fascinating and complicated community you've created.
1: Yeah, uh, one of the things in one of his early journals, when this before the time of the book, he. You know he, for for a while he he wrote in some kind of like self made code and he was giving himself writing tips about how how what how he could write in order to be well received in London, you know, which is of course if you're a colonial person that's where everything was happening, and he also said he wanted to be the first the one true christian of his age. So if even if nobody else was able to 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 be a saint on earth to live he 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 really wanted to do it. So I read that and I'm like, "Oh my god, he was ambitious." <laughs> Very ambitious. And of course, I mean, I'm ambitious too. I want to write something brilliant that lasts and so so it was easy to to get into his inner life through through that. And
0: He was, as we heard in the reading that began this, he was an unusual man. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to say, so that's kind of folklore that he actually sat in the elm tree in front of his house. But I'm the writer in residence at the public library, the Forbes Library in Northampton. And they have, the elm trees are no longer there, but they have in their special collections room, A slice of the elm is just a slice from a tree and it's framed under glass. It's very strange looking. There's lots of kind of town lore around those elms.
0: I'd like you to talk about having, you know, discovered this character and this kind of conflict in the book that is, you know, with owning slaves yet being this kind of uh, very strict Christian. I'd like you to talk about crafting a plot and, and figuring out where that goes in terms of telling a story where did you find your story
1: well it's one of the things i really loved about doing this book is that i felt the story was there in the history i mean it looked shakespearean to me you know because he's the thing he most cares about sort of making this town famous for his piety and his writing did that he achieved his ambitions um also sort of turned against him um, as the town rejected him. And this, the part about slavery, I mean, once you know that, it's that many of the the Calvinist ministers own slaves. You've got this situation where something like the Puritan work ethic, for instance, you know, looks very different. I mean, it writes itself. <laughs> the,
0: one of the things, too— uh, I, as a as a writer, you have the prose in this book is really wonderful. Thank and you. You do a really great job of giving us, you know, the interior life of the characters and including the interior life of some insects. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is this is a interesting. Uh, it's a visionary approach, but it's the proper approach because part of the Calvinist uh, vision of the world was that you read the world like a book.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right, and I also love doing the insects because, um, in Jonathan Edwards' most famous sermon, that sinners in the hands of an angry God, he has this image of God dangling a sinner over the fires of hell, like you might dangle a spider over the hearth fire. Now I've said that to people since, and they're like, "Who would dangle a a, a spider over a fire? That's really mean." But it's so, and he he writes a spider letter. He when he was young, he was trying to get published in London. So he uses imagery around insects kind of throughout his work, um, spiders and insects. And I thought, okay, the spiders, the insects, they they were always there. And and as I was writing the book, I was traveling through Northampton. I spent a lot of times out, outside writing, and as I did, insects would show up. And any time that happened, I had to stop whatever else I was doing and and watch what the insect did and tried to ride it as well as I can. And I I, I didn't swat them. I waited till they left. It was such a, a fantastic meditative thing to do. I really miss it. And I started to feel like they were sort of like, you know, emissaries from another time. And they were giving me all these like sensory experiences that those 18th century people in that landscape would have had. And they're also... He would have think he would say that they would they're part of God's creation. They were they would be reinforcing his Calvinist worldview. But I thought mm, they might be on other agendas, their own insect agendas. So that was another things that uh, another way to to sort of include his powerful powerful voice and other voices as well.
0: Uh, talk about um, <clears throat> what you're writing, uh, Leah. She's a really fascinating character. I I really liked being with her and. and her vision of the world is so interesting, and I, as you you mentioned, having some trepidation approaching uh, the internal life of this character, and I think that that's appropriate but unnecessary because I think you did a great job.
1: Thank you, thank you. Well, it's just, I mean, as I said, you know, there's there's terrible history um, of having of, of dehumanizing. People across racial lines, and I think it's one of the legacies of slavery that um, that it's it's harder than you than at least I found it harder than you might think to to be able to truly acknowledge and explore like the internal consequences of someone whose life is is being assumed solely for the purpose of supporting someone else. You know that's such an ugly thing, but it's very much. Um, a part of the culture that I was raised in, and so I I find remnants of that still in me, and I have to, you know, I had to really be aware of them in order to do a, a decent job with Leah.
0: Well, one of the things, too, is that uh, for all that he owned slaves, Edwards was a little bit, gave his slaves some freedoms that... Uh, they might not have had in other uh, situations
1: well yeah because he acknowledged their souls and so um, in the church records during that first revival that um, that sort of helped spark the Great Awakening um, six African Americans joined the church six slaves including Jonathan Edwards slave Leah And if you were a member of the church, that that does put you in a kind of a different status in the town. So there was controversy um, among some people that time and a little earlier about whether or not to convert slaves to Christianity because slavery was allowed for in the Bible, but the interpretation was, but you weren't supposed to enslave other Christians. So, So it was a little, well, so maybe we shouldn't convert them at all. But, and, and, I, so I, I I've recently heard from a scholar that if I understand his argument right, that maybe that's, it's possibly like that's one of the places that the idea of race even developed because you needed some kind of different category in order to justify enslaving Christians, you know? So, okay, well, there are others, so we can do it. You know,
0: it, it strikes me, too, that uh, one of the things that, about this book that I thought was really interesting was um just to understand the concept of a revi- of revival we hear that you know tossed about all the time to the point where it has no meaning i like you to tell us what the what jonathan edwards meant by revival
1: well revival awakening it's it there's nothing more important than an individual experience of of grace um and one scholar told me that it's it's very that it was very text based like one thing that traditionally would happen is that you would have a a line from from the bible from scripture um um appear in you i mean he described it as actually sort of almost bodily penetrating you this this line from scripture so that was one step that might happen and then um you would it it so you would it would change everything it's, it's how you see the beauty in the world is if you have grace within you and you are able to perceive um, a chair, a desk, a tree um, through that grace, then you see God in it and, and you are a light and the world is a light. So that was the internal experience of it. And then externally, it meant that God was physically, well, physically, God was, was closer the, you had the near presence of God, so God has is is very close to Northampton in the early 1730s, and there's a big, um, a lot of people are responding, and and everything kind of or not everything. If one of the signs of uh, powerful revival um, that Jonathan Edwards had to defend it because it looked like excesses to some people was that you could have these extreme physical and emotional responses to God's grace and still carry out your duties. You know, like he used an example of um, his wife Sarah in 1742 had – Intense series of virtual experiences while he was out of town, which I find really interesting. You know, so that was another minister. You know, that had to give him at least a positive too. But there's no, that's just me. There's no record that it did. He used that, and so she wrote it down. So we get her voice, which is so wonderful. And then he used that account as an example. He didn't identify her by gender or who he she was, but. He, but he he published it and said, "This is look at this experience of grace." And this person went ahead. She had at the time seven children. She, they eventually had eleven, and she was running the household. There were all sorts of visiting ministers, so she was taking care of her duties and you know fainting and writhing and staying in church for all hours. It's it's so, and ministers. It was a change in the society. Once it started happening, some would you know get in boats, jump on the horses, and come to where it was happening. To, to try to make more happening because that was it. It was the biggest thing in the world, you know.
0: De- it- it seems to me, I would say they lived in a magic reality. I mean, very much yes. where, or in a world as a, like something out of a J.R. Tolkien fantasy novel. Well,
1: <laughs> he used the word supernatural, so I mean, and and there's a great book. I think I think oh, I'm going to forget the title. "World of Wonders: Days of Awe" by David Hall. It, it's a, it's from a little bit earlier, but he really helped me with that idea of the whole world as alive, it's animate, and and the sort of portent. And meanings you could gather if if you were on the ground where a murderer had passed, maybe it would bleed. You know, I mean, yes, yes. Uh, I one of
0: the things I I think that uh, is really interesting is the the external society because we have the this whole um, vision of the fantastic of the world around you, yet. You are living in a very material society, and you have a lot of people. There's a lot of strata and social class that are not in any way fantastic. And I like the way you give us that vision of both. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the... Uh, society and how that played into this kind of religious vision.
1: Well, one thing that is so interesting is they, they had to rebuild a meeting house. You know, their old one fell apart, and they knew it was about to. So then they had this big controversy about seating in the meeting house, who was going to sit where, because that was a big status thing. And Jonathan Edwards, I think the categories um, in the previous meeting house had been age like material wealth and service to the community and when they were the the committee right That's they so interesting isn't it this is
0: really like yeah uh, by the by the book oh yeah
1: but but when the committee was reassigning the seats for the new meeting house they decided to kind of oh service was not as interesting it's like it was material wealth became sort of the bigger thing about where you were going to sit you know and And Jonathan Edwards preached a series of sermons um, called Charity and Its Fruits where he um, condemned the obsession with material wealth. So he was not a materialist. I mean, he was a well-paid minister. But he, the society was changing in, in that you could be more open about, you know, the richer you are, the better, you know. And there were struggles around, like, things like fuel, like, because the woodlots were getting exact. So, you know, you had to go 10 miles now to get your wood. And some people didn't have the privileges that the everybody who had founded started with for the common grazing and stuff. Young men, well, young everybody but particularly young men, you were having to stay in their parents' household longer and longer into their late 20s because there wasn't land for them to start their own farm, so they couldn't marry, and that was a source of tension. Boy, that sounds familiar. Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) I really like the way that you put this together as a novel, and I think it's so interesting. I'd like to talk just a little bit about your writing process. When you started writing this, did you start writing episodes from it, or— did you just start at page 1 and finish up at page x?
1: Oh no, not page 1 to page x. I did write particular episodes. I had a I had a like a word table file hanging on my my bulletin board till just a couple weeks ago which and I oh I cried when I took it down. I, I cuz and it was so it was different years, different points in his years in Northampton. And when I started I didn't even know that that was the frame only Northampton, but And one of the very earliest pieces that I wrote, um, I think of as Honey, it comes quite late in in the book, and it's Jonathan Edwards thinking of his wife Sarah's spiritual experiences with his imagery of honey, which he often used. He would say, you know, you can't just think about the honey, you can't just touch the jar if you want to know what honey is you have to taste it you know at sweetness so he evokes sweetness in such gorgeous ways and so that piece about the the beauty and the what I mean I experienced this as sensuality the incredible blissful grace and pleasure of of Calvinism um, was something that I wanted to that that was that was an early piece of the book, and i could I always wanted to head back for that. Like that's why people were so worked so hard to to live true to to their beliefs. It's because they there was that level of pleasure for them in doing it. it it's
0: interesting because it's it seems somewhat um oxymoronic to our understanding of Calvinism as a sort of denial of the world. But it's a really intent. It's a denial to the point where it gets flipped, and you really get to experience it on a sensual level. And I think you do a great job of uh, showing that kind of uh, paradox of the sensuality and the and the. Uh, denial.
1: Yeah, is it denial or is it going into it more deeply? And, of course, they would say, oh, yeah, the things of this world, they're nothing to the things of heaven. But for Jonathan Edwards, in any way, it looks to me like he goes in more deeply. And the other thing I want to say about that is that they weren't Victorians. We look at them through this lens from the 19th century of, you know, a certain kind of Victorian prudery that they didn't have. So I, I think that they get a bad rap in certain ways because of that. Well, too, i, I
0: they were— you know, they were colonists, so they were separated from, you know, the mothership, so to speak. So they could run a little bit farther afield, and I think that Jonathan Edwards is the himself is the perfect example. He's almost a, a Colonel Kurtz
1: figure. So, <laughs> yeah, right. I can see it. Uh,
0: what, I'd like you to talk about—so uh, you, you had these different episodes, and, and once you started putting them together, did you know who was going to— be proved to be important which characters were going to come when and
1: it was a struggle I and really truly the my for it's got to be years at the beginning I was struggling really hard just to try to get the chronology right and and to understand what happened when and why, and to understand what some of the the theological controversies were about. So, so I was it. it was took a lot of work because I had no background. I don't have any background in history, to 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 try to 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 get the context right, and that was very important to me to 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 really try to be able to see the world through the ways that they they saw it. And and I did. I had to try out a lot of different voices, and it was kind of late in the process that I that I settled on. Um, how what whose head I was going to go into, and how that was going to work, one thing that was a big gift in the writing process was when i I realized that I wanted to write most of the first draft by hand with long hand because you know there's there's wonderful text from him and so you know his handwriting was some another sort of I mean that's so intimate and so physical you can see where somebody else's physical hand has been and it really changed my writing process to be bringing it through my arm and my hands and my fingers and a pen or a pencil onto paper like he did as opposed to writing it on the computer the first time around.
0: Boy that's really really interesting and this of course must have required years of research. Talk about the you know it must be fun going you were sitting on top of all the primary sources.
1: Well, you know many of the primary sources in Northampton were not there because the of the conflict between the town and and Northampton they the the descendants didn't want um you know, Jonathan Edwards stuff to be there. I mean, there's a great story about his daughter, Mary Edwards, who stayed after the town kicked him out. And she went to church. Um, every Sunday, but she was so mad at the congregation that she didn't go into the sanctuary. She sat in the hall and listened to the sermon, and like once a month, she would take a boat across the river to Hadley for communion. So there were some lingering tensions, and so his papers, um, the town has some things. The library has some things, uh, which is wonderful, and of course, there's the physical landscape, but um, almost all of his papers are at, at Yale, at the Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale. And now um, the Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards Center website is unbelievable. It's an online archive. For the first time, you know, all they've been transcribing sermons and treatises. They've put all um, their published books, um, the works of Jonathan Edwards, online. So people can go there and just go almost anywhere they want in, um, in Jonathan Edwards' work. But when I started that wasn't true that came just at the very very end for me so but you know they did post like a chronology when that came when I was a few years in the project I was like okay so now I have a really good handle on it. and like one of the things that I loved from them um, the director Ken Minkimo was um, very helpful so when I was trying to struggle with what they would wear, how they would dress in the morning, like all these physical details that you really have to have in order to build a convincing world. He sent me Jonathan Edwards' will, which listed everything they had in the household. So then I knew he had a beaver hat and a second-best wig and, you know, all the different kind of vests. I mean, I knew what they cooked with. I had, you know, in their particular household, it was amazing.
0: That sounds fascinating. Now, are you working on a new novel?
1: Um, I think I... The truth. Well, I've have I've started something, but I haven't been back to it in a while, and I'm a little uncertain about what I'm going to do next.
0: Well, this book is, will keep us occupied for quite some time. I've been talking to Susan since, her new novel is *Spider in a Tree*. Thank you for joining me, Susan.
1: Such a pleasure. <laughs>